Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to do a discussion, part two of anesthesia equipment and monitoring devices. If you did not catch part one, I encourage you to go back and do so. We talked about basic equipment and monitoring devices that we're going to be using for different anesthetics that we do. We talked about the AANA guidelines and standards for the basic level of monitoring equipment, as well as when you would use extra things such as cerebral oximetry, stump pressures, art lines, etc. We also talked about the quality pre-op assessment that's going to be needed and the patient comorbidities that will guide this decision making. And then we went into the disinfection, infection prevention, different policies that go in place to sterilize equipment that we're going to be using between patients. And so if you did not catch that episode, I highly encourage you to go back and do so. In the second episode, we're going to start moving into now what happens when things go wrong. So if you have anesthesia equipment that start malfunctioning, the anesthesia gas machine is malfunctioning, you have an electrical failure, what are things that we're going to be doing or at least have as a backup in place for in the event that these things happen? So to start us off here, Tanner is just going to go through what are some of the different anesthesia equipments that can go wrong and what are we going to do when they do go wrong? We talked last episode about all the different ways that we can monitor our patients, all the different really cool technologies that we can use to monitor our patients. And this is really exciting for anesthesia because as we get more and more technology, we have you know more and more opportunities, more and more things that we can do to help our patients and, and just you know newer, better ways that we can do this. It also brings in more and more potential for things to go wrong for things that you're counting on that are, you know, different devices, different monitors that can go wrong. You know, I, I don't know how many times I get into the OR in the morning and I can't get my computer to turn on right, or I can't get my charting system to turn on right. And, you know, that's like the very basic level, very low level problem that you might run into. But this gets much more serious though. When we're talking about, okay, the screen on your GlideScope goes out. Now we're, you know, checking placement of a double lumen tube with your fiber optic scope and you, and your light goes out. We're talking about using a ultrasound for an A-line placement and you lose power or possibly we have equipment malfunctions within your ventilator. We'll get into, you know, lots of these different situations and, and scenarios moving forward. But my point is we have really, really cool capabilities and we have a lot of really cool opportunities to use great equipment, to use great monitoring equipment. But we also should be very aware that these things are all valuable. They can fail. They can, uh, you know, go out and there's going to be times when this happens we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared for how we're going to respond, how we're going to manage the patient, how we're going to keep them safe until we can get those things either back up and running or we can bridge to another therapy or another monitoring device or uh, another tool that we can use for whatever procedure we're doing. 
the first thing that we want to think about is, you know, looking at the severity of the equipment malfunction. So there's different levels here. There's like my example, my computer won't turn on. And then there's, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, complete loss of power to the OR. There's varying levels of equipment malfunction. For us, it's going to be important that we quickly are, you know, assessing the situation and that we're also quickly getting more people involved and getting help to help us get through, you know, whatever that situation would look like. Obviously, if it's logging onto a computer, that's a, a very low level problem or it could be. I mean, you could be needing to get the patient's labs in the middle of a case and your computer goes out and it's very important for the the case to proceed. That obviously becomes a much higher level of uh, a problem. But my, my point is we're constantly assessing the situation and we're keeping patient safety at the forefront of how we're going to respond to these different situations. The first thing that we want to talk about is, okay, let's talk about our endotracheal tube or our circuit having a malfunction. This is something that is not all that uncommon when you are in the middle of a case or maybe you're just starting a case and you're starting to notice that maybe you have you know, problems with the volumes that you're giving to the patient. Possibly you you know, are noticing this even before your ventilator will tell you. Possibly you're seeing that you're not able to drive your bellows and you're seeing that there's, you know, an issue with your circuit or possibly with endotracheal tube. First thing you're going to want to do in this situation is to try to go back to the source. So you're checking all your connections and looking for the most common areas that you might have, you know, a disconnect. So you're looking at your connection to the actual ET tube from your circuit. You're looking at the connection there with the filter. You're looking at the connection back to your inspiratory and expiratory spot on your anesthesia machine. And you're going to, you know, check your bag, check you know, make sure that everything seems to be in working order. We're going to be doing these, you know, leak tests in between every case. And so it shouldn't be something that is an actual problem with the equipment. Not saying that can't happen, but typically you should have already checked out all that equipment. And so ideally, if you're getting this problem in the middle of a case, you're probably going to find an issue with one of your connections has come undone. It's important, like we talked about with last episode, that we're you know monitoring the patient appropriately. One of the monitors that we talked about was making sure that we were checking the ventilation of the patient. So we're watching end tidal CO2. Uh, we're checking for bilateral breath sounds after we've intubated. So we have checked off you know many of these troubleshooting things already when we have you know, cross those things off the list. We know the tube's in the right place because we've checked by a lot of breast sounds. We know the tube's in the right place because we had good end title for, you know, the first part of this case. And so those are things that now when you're troubleshooting, you're going down the line of how am I going to fix this? Those are things that are already off your list because you've checked those appropriately at the very beginning. Those are part of your standard monitors and it expedites your troubleshooting now that you have an issue. And it's important too at this point to add, it, it may seem like an extra step in between each case to do a circuit leak check. And I often on the ventilators at my facility will just go ahead and do the standard automated circuit leak check. I know at some facilities I did during school, they would have me manually just occlude the circuit turn my APL valve between 30 and 70, and then just press the oxygen flush valve 
make sure the bag filled up and I try to squeeze that air out. And uh, if it prevented me from doing so, then I knew there was not a leak in the circuit. And again, at my facility now, I just automatically do that with having the ventilator check that to give me a pass or fail. But I will share, there was one time I was doing, I believe it was airway procedures and it was a swing room and I was doing both sides. And so it was a very fast day. We were jumping back and forth and back and forth. And I was still a student. I had a preceptor with me. I dropped the the previous patient off in the recovery room, came into the second room, and it was a really quick turnover. They were already bringing the patient back, and I didn't do that circuit leak check. We get the patient into the room, we hook them up, and I am just having such difficulty ventilating the patient. And I remember the anesthesiologist and the CRNA uh, looked at me and said, was the circuit check good? And I had to admit to them, I said, I didn't do one between these two cases. I was running short and I forgot to do one. And so we didn't know at that moment if we were having trouble ventilating purely because of the patient's anatomy, the lack of ability to ventilate the patient, or if it was because we had faulty equipment. Long story short, there was really no harm done to the patient. We went ahead and just intubated and it was fine. But that scarred me from that moment that I was going to make sure I always ensured that I was using equipment that was sound before I induced the patient and that I wasn't going to have to worry about there being a leak or something in the circuit when I went to ventilate the patient. Um, So again, it's important that we take the time, even if you're rushing from case to case, just take the time to do that. I feel like often there are user errors that are done, but in these kind of situations, there are things that we can do to minimize any equipment malfunctions ahead of time. And so if you just take the time to do that, we can catch those before we even have any type of negative consequences happen to patients. So now let's say we get into the event that your airway equipment, such as the light on the end of a direct laryngoscopy blade, or your glide scope, maybe your fiber optic scope, any of those things are malfunctioning. This is the case, and you've already induced the patient, obviously. We're going to try to intubate the patient. We're using one of these devices, and the thing shuts off, or it's it's malfunctioning some other way. Rather than move forward with the intubation process here, just carefully remove the device from the patient and ensure that you can adequately bag mask ventilate the patient. Because again, we've already induced them. We want to make sure that we can get a reliable and adequate ventilation going. And if you can do that through bag mask ventilation, then that takes away any type of urgency and you can troubleshoot with somebody else in the room as to what was going on with that device. It may be that it wasn't plugged in, the battery ran out and you need to replug in the device to get it to work again. Maybe you need to go get another device. Whatever the case may be, you can work that out with the other person in the room, have them go get another device, plug it in, et cetera, as long as you're able to maintain that adequate ventilation. And then obviously you would have anesthesia gas or more IV anesthetics given to the patient to keep them anesthetized while we're going through this process. The part where it becomes tricky is, let's say you get into an event here where it's an already known difficult airway. Let's say you're using the glide scope or you're using a direct laryngoscopy blade, but you're unable to get a great view. The light's bad on it and things aren't going well. The glide scope shuts down or even the worst case scenario, you're fiber optically intubating and that shuts down. And you try to bag mass ventilate the patient, you place an oral airway, et cetera. And you just can't do that. 
then urgency and time is of the essence here compared to the first scenario where you could ventilate the patient. So this is where we're going to refer you to look at the difficult airway algorithm. We did a separate talk on this where we went through the AANA and the ASA's protocol on difficult airway algorithms. And so this is when you would follow that algorithm and work down that. But again, time is going to be of the essence in this case to get a patient intubated and secure that airway. And while we're not going to spend the time on this talk to go through all of that, just know that you have other equipment that you can use. This is why you should have plan B and C and the equipment available. Know where your LMAs are at. If you need to slip an LMA in, make sure that you have all the equipment necessary and know at your facility where the difficult airway algorithm or the difficult airway equipment is going to be located at. And then lastly for airway, if you've placed a double lumen tube, and let's say, as Tanner mentioned, you're going to be going down with a fiber optic scope to verify placement of that, and it isn't working adequately, it's not working correctly, it's it's recommended that you don't proceed with the procedure yet until you can get another fiber optic in there to actually verify placement. So don't simply start doing one lung ventilation, just maintain both lumens ventilating prior to having an actual visual verification with the fiber optic that you're in the right spot. So again, if something goes wrong with the fiber optic in this scenario, there's no rush, there's no panic, you're able to ventilate. It's just a matter of verifying the exact placement you're at. So just keep your motions in check. Don't necessarily rush forward. Just wait until you get another piece of equipment in there or you troubleshoot, and then you can start the the one lung ventilation. But again, in most of these scenarios, if you're able to ventilate the patient, time is not of the essence. Keep your emotions intact, think critically, and try to troubleshoot with somebody else what is actually going on. It's the issue when you don't have a secure airway and you can't ventilate the patient and you don't have the equipment working that you need to follow that difficult airway algorithm. Let's talk about a scenario where you are in the middle of a case and all of a sudden you start to smell maybe a little bit of anesthetic gas. Maybe you start to smell a little bit of SIBO and you you know, are trying to troubleshoot, you get towards the patient's head and you start to hear some air that's moving around the cuff. Uh, you feel your pilot balloon. It feels a little soft. You give it a little bit of air. You check your pressures and your pilot balloon is then deflated again. And you realize that you're having issues with the actual cuff of your ET tube. This is something where you know you're not going to be able to be giving the appropriate volume to the patient that you would be desiring to give you're also not having a secured airway where you have you know that endotracheal cuff that is inflated and there's a variety of reasons that we won't get into here why that would be a problem as far as you know risk for aspiration and you know other things that could be a problem there but let's talk about that's the problem. Now, how are we going to fix this? The The best way that we can do this is to use a tube exchanger. And this is going to be placing a catheter that will go through the endotracheal tube. You'll be able to take all that endotracheal tube over that catheter. It will stay in through the cords. After that's out, you'll be able to place a new endotracheal tube through the cords and secure it appropriately. This is something that can easily happen if you have 
an intubation where somebody has, you know, larger teeth or possibly they have a really thick neck and a small mouth opening and it's difficult to pass the endotracheal tube through their teeth as you're going to intubate a patient. You can catch the teeth there and snag that cuff and cause a small tear. Sometimes it's just enough that it won't happen initially. And just as the case goes on and on, you'll start to finally see the tear become evident as you start to lose volumes, as you start to hear a leak. And so this is something that, again, might not happen at the beginning of a case. It could happen throughout the case. And it's important, again, that you are aware of the steps to exchange that tube using uh, airway exchange catheter. When we talk about the gas machine and the you know complex machine that it is, there's all these different high-pressure system, low-pressure, intermediate-pressure systems. There's a lot of safety checks. There's a lot of different hoses that are coming from the wall. There's the your cylinders. There's the circuit. There's the, all these different components that make up the anesthesia machine. There's obviously with something that's that complex, a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. And it's important that we talk here briefly about what are we going to do when we have an anesthesia gas machine malfunction? What are we going to do to keep the patient safe? How are we going to keep the patient at the forefront of our care while we're still trying to troubleshoot and figure out the problem with this gas machine? Again, like we talked about with these other different types of malfunctions, it's important to get other people involved, call for help, get more people to be there and to help you troubleshoot. That'll be your step one. And it's important that you also understand the different mechanisms of the machine and you're understanding the different pressure systems so that you can appropriately diagnose or walk through the different possible problems with the anesthesia machine. So we want to do a basic walkthrough now of the anesthesia machine and talk about things that can go wrong as we walk through them. And hopefully this will make more sense. If you want a more detailed description of the anesthesia gas machine, uh, we have another episode designated just for the machine itself that we go in more detail on it but we're going to do the more high-arching points for this talk. So as Tanner talked about, as we walk through this, there's different pressure systems. And so we're going to talk first about the high-pressure system. So the high-pressure system is basically just the cylinders that are attached at the backside of the anesthesia machine. And the reason it's a high-pressure circuit is because it's going to be coming in higher than the 50 pounds per square inch or PSI that the gas is going to be delivered from the wall. Depending on the tank, an oxygen, a full oxygen cylinder is going to be roughly 2,000 PSI compared to the 50 PSI coming in from the wall. Again, this will depend on each and every gas tank or cylinder that you're using. A full nitrous oxide cylinder is going to be roughly 745 PSI. Uh, etc. But so the pressure that is high at this point has to come down to a low enough level before it reaches the patient. And so there's a pressure regulator that's going to be attached to each of these cylinders that transitions the high pressure of the cylinders into what we call the intermediate pressure, which is around 45 PSI when it leaves these pressure regulators prior, prior to entering the machine. So now you have an roughly equal PSI coming from either the cylinder or from the wall. And the reason if you have the cylinders open, but you have the gas also pipeline hooked up to the wall, 
the reason that it takes the pressure or takes the gas from the wall and not the cylinder is because it comes in at roughly 50 PSI from the wall. Whereas after the regulators have come from the cylinders, now you only have 45 PSI. So it's going to pull the 50 or the higher PSI from the wall prior to the cylinder. So in the event that you have a wall disconnect or a pipeline disconnect with the, the, the gas coming in from the wall, then your cylinder will kick on. So that's why it's important that you have that, that cylinder checked ahead of time. Make sure you have enough gas in the cylinder, enough oxygen in that cylinder so that for one, you can open it if it's not already opened, uh, but two, that you can have that gas actually flow in in the event that you would have a disconnect from an oxygen source in the wall. But with these cylinders though, there's a safety mechanism put in place. So it's called the pin index safety system or the PIS system. And so each system has a different pin arrangement and so there's these washers that attach between the cylinder and the, the back of the machine, and they're designated to not allow you to mismatch. So you couldn't attach a nitrous oxide tank to where the oxygen is supposed to be connected to. And so air has a pin arrangement of one and five, oxygen has a pin arrangement of two and five, and nitrous oxide has an arrangement of three and five. However, you can switch them or mix them up if you try to put either a second washer on the back if you manipulate it or try to force it etc so it's also important that you do check and make sure that uh, you open these cylinders and you actually get the correct gas flow going through the front of the anesthesia machine again it's something that hopefully won't be done but it's something that this piss system this piss system should decrease the chances of a different cylinder being put in place but again it can happen by force and so we need to be able to keep that in mind so the intermediate pressure system it starts like i said earlier with the pipeline coming in from the wall as well as after the cylinder pressure regulators now that gas coming in from those cylinders are now down to an intermediate pressure system and the system is going to go all the way up into the flow meter valves now, I'm going to talk about the pipelines here, since this is technically in the intermediate system. Just like we had the cylinders that had this safety system in place, there's also what's called the diameter index safety system or the DIS system set up for the pipelines coming in from the wall. And it's another system similar to those pins that we saw in the cylinders that prevent you from attaching the nitrous oxide hose to the oxygen input. And that way you don't have a pipeline crossover. Now, again, this can happen though. And so we need to make sure that we limit that from occurring. And so we have these fill safe valves that are going to be inside the anesthesia machine during the intermediate pressure system. So a fill safe valve, what it does is it opens when you have a pressure from the oxygen flowing in. And so when oxygen is flowing into the machine, it's going to come in at that PSI of around 45 or 50, depending on if it's coming from the pipeline or the cylinder then the pressure of the oxygen flowing through this fail-safe valve will push open the valve. And at the other end of that valve, it's connected to the pathway for nitrous oxide. So what if you can envision this in your head, you have a valve that's closed in the oxygen pipeline. And so if it's closed, it's also attached to a second part that's going to keep the nitrous oxide closed. And so if you turn on nitrous oxide, nothing would happen. It wouldn't go through the machine. But if you turn on oxygen, it will open with the pressure of oxygen. It will open that valve, which then on the backside pushes open the nitrous oxide 
valve that was closing that pathway. So once oxygen is on, then you can turn on nitrous oxide. And that's to prevent any type of hypoxic mixture that you may have. The problem though is it doesn't know what kind of gas is coming through that oxygen pipeline. So if you do have a crossover and nitrous oxide is coming through the oxygen pipe, it's still pressure. And so it would still push open that valve. So it's not necessarily differentiating here what type of gas it is. It's just all based on pressure at this point. So how do you test if this is actually working? So if you have both nitrous and oxygen flowing through the machine, you disconnect the nitrous pipeline and you see if both the nitrous and the oxygen stop flowing. So keep in mind, this is only based on a pressure of oxygen, not the actual oxygen itself. So if there is a pipeline crossover, it means that those inlets from the wall are switched with the pipeline tubing. And so this other gas can keep that valve open and allow the epoxic mixture to occur. If you want more detail on that fail-safe valve, again, go to our episode that we talked about the anesthesia machine and we go into more detail on that. So after you go through the fail-safe valves, the gases then go through a second pressure regulator, which drops the pressure into the low pressure system as it enters the flow meters. So in the event that the machine's going to fail and that inspiratory O2 is decreased, at any point during a general anesthetic, then you need to be able to determine if there is a pipeline crossover, a pipeline failure, the pipeline has become disconnected. If this is the case, you need to ensure that your oxygen cylinder is open in order to restore that oxygen through the anesthesia machine. So let's say you're in the middle of a general anesthetic, all of a sudden your machine's alarming that it has uh, a low amounts of oxygen going into the machine itself. Um, sometimes if you go to the back, somebody may have accidentally disconnected the, the hose connecting to the wall. You just have to reattach it at that, at that point. Uh, if you can't find any disconnect, um, or maybe there is a disconnect, and you even though you hook it back up, you're not getting flow, um, you can always revert back to that oxygen cylinder. That's why it's so important that you check at the beginning of the day that you have a full tank or at least a tank that's going to be able to provide you enough oxygen until you can get a fix put in place. However, though, if you're still unable to get O2 in this case, you turn on your cylinder, you're not getting O2. This is why it's really important to always have plan B. And plan B is to have a pressure bag or an ambu bag that you can uh, bag mass ventilate the patient. And then make sure you also have an O2 tank or cylinder in the room as well. Um, so again, at any point, if you're having issues with your ventilator, at any point, if there's issues with the anesthesia gas machine, you can always get your ambu bag. You can hook it up to an oxygen cylinder, oxygen tank, and place that onto the ET tube and disconnect your circuit, and you can manually ventilate the patient. Just keep in mind, if you do this, though, you're not going to be getting any inhaled anesthetic from your anesthesia machine, so you need to convert to a TIVA if you want to keep the patient anesthetized. This is all part of thinking critically while we're also keeping the patient at the center of our care and the patient at the center of the picture, keeping their safety first and foremost, because you are trying to do all this troubleshooting. And this would be something that would be easily overlooked. We forget to switch over to a TIVA. You're used to be giving the anesthetic gases and now you need to switch over. And so this is again, just something that we like to mention here so that you will keep that in the back of your mind. You're going to plan B, you're using your ambu bag, whether you're using an easy tube LMA or if you're needing to mask them, whatever that situation looks like. But again, you need to make sure that you're also giving your anesthetics if that's appropriate. Cole mentioned the high pressure system, the intermediate pressure system. Now let's talk about the low pressure system. 
So at the flow meters, we have the hypoxic mixture prevention mechanism that's going to limit the amount of nitrous that can be used. And that's in relation to the oxygen. So the ratio is limited to three parts for nitrous to every one part of oxygen. Theoretically, this means that you could have your FiO2 as low as 25% and your nitrous could be as high as 75%. This is a direct mechanism. So as you will increase your nitrous, there's a chain that will connect that to your oxygen. So as you increase your nitrous, it's going to increase your oxygen as well. So that prevents the anesthetic machine from giving a hypoxic mixture. When we're looking at our flow meters, your oxygen should be always the last to be added to the different flow meters. And this is obviously not something that we're setting up. It's something that's already created on the anesthesia machine. The reason that this is done this way is you have your vertical flow meters. They're all going to be lined up next to one another, and they're all connected at the top with a common gas line. This is where you could have a problem or if you have a leak or a crack in your common gas line, well, the reason that your oxygen is going to be lost is because if you have, again, a leak there, then you could potentially have a hypoxic mixture if the leak was after the oxygen was included into this common gas line. Now that the oxygen is the last in the line, if you have a leak prior to that, then you'll still ensure that you're getting your oxygen last. If you have a leak after, then it's already past the point when you are mixing your gases together, your nitrous and your oxygen or what have you. And so again, it's not going to be a problem because you have an equal amount leaking out that would be going to the patient. Uh, so again, it's important that you are aware of this and just keep that in mind. There is some thought and fail safes and safety mechanisms to help the machine you know, minimize any problems that, that would arise. If there is a crack in the oxygen flow meter during a general anesthetic, then you're going to want to supplement with an Ambu bag and an O2 tank. You'll also, like we mentioned for the previous problem when Cole was talking, you'll still want to give them anesthesia with your intravenous anesthetics, uh, again, because you're not going to be using your gas through the machine. And so, again, keep that in mind if you would need to switch over to an Ambu bag. You can also have problems with the actual flow meters and, you know, on the older models or not the electronic models, you have those traditional fluted tubes with the bob that's right in the middle. Sometimes those can get stuck. You can have debris or other problems that are causing that to be stuck. So you can kind of jostle the flow and see if that'll release it. You can tap on the outside of the flow meter to see if that will release it as well. Ultimately, if you have issues there, we'll follow the same steps that we just talked about as far as, you know, giving them supplemental oxygen through the Ambu bag, and then you can give them anesthesia through their IV. On the newer machine models, you'll see many more converting over to the electronic flow meters. If you have issues here, uh, whether you see that in your machine check or during a case, ultimately you're going to have to have the machine representative look at this and look to replace it. So it's important that you just you know, move that up the chain of command to get that looked at quickly. You can get inaccurate readings if you have issues here with your different gas flows. And so it's important that that is addressed. It's nothing mechanical that you can do. But again, all the reason that we're doing the machine checks and then you're just being very vigilant and making sure that you understand this still could be a problem with the electronic flow meters if you're having discrepancies during a case. So keep that in mind. And, you know, every machine is going to be different. So ultimately just have the representative take a look at that. 
So much of this might seem redundant or might seem like it has little to do with what we are talking about with the overarching, you know, topic of this episode, talking about the different, uh, you know, failures or equipment malfunctions. But we wanted to cover the flow through the anesthesia machine mostly because this is going to, you know, help you as you have issues with your anesthesia machine to be able to troubleshoot quickly to be able to identify which system might be causing a problem, to be able to understand, you know, where to direct your efforts. And I think it's just a helpful refresher to understand the flow through the machine into the patient. And so then when we have a problem arise, again, it's just easier to to navigate and to understand what exactly what we're dealing with. The biggest thing that we can do to prevent these failures or these problems with the anesthesia gas machine is to do the recommended safety checks. So each day we should be turning the machine all the way off and restarting it. We should be checking the pipeline pressures, the gas cylinder pressures as well to check for adequate pressure in those tanks. We should be checking the low pressure system for a leak, calibrate your oxygen, make sure that you are checking your positive pressure leak test between every single patient. And we should also you know, be making sure that we do have an AMBU bag on the back of our machine making sure that we have those plan B, like Cole was talking about, available and ready for when, you know, ideally this is not something that we're going to be encountering. But if it is, we've already checked through the machine. We've already made sure that we have the AMBU bag and we have this things that we need to do to move on to plan B to keep the patient safe. And so this is something, again, that we should be doing every single day on, on you know, most of these checks. And then Again, between every single patient, we should be checking to make sure that our circuit is appropriate and is not having a leak as well. So let's talk about in the event that you have a circuit leak, and really we've already discussed this leading up to this point in the talk, but just to refresh, since we're going through this topic right now, it's imperative that you do a positive pressure test on the circuit before each and every case. However, there are still times when you may have a leak develop during a general anesthetic. And again, the, the most common cause that I typically see is just simply a disconnect. And again, it's recognizing that you had that disconnect, putting it back on. Uh, it's just so important, again, why we have alarms set on our machines and why it's important that we keep those alarms set and we don't mute those alarms. Uh, because there are often times when I will have just intubated a patient, I'm around putting a second IV in and, or we just reposition the patient, et cetera. And I'm doing other task oriented things. I'm trying to chart, I'm trying to give my antibiotic, et cetera. And then all of a sudden my anesthesia gas machine starts alarming and I look over and sure enough, there's a disconnect. And so it's just very important that we have that uh, alarm in place. We can reconnect everything before the patient has any type of drop in saturations. But again, sometimes it's not because of that. Sometimes either the cuff isn't inflated quite enough and you're not having a good seal there and you're having different gas leak out around the cuff. Now, maybe you don't have a good seal on your laryngeal mask airway or your LMA. Just making sure that all those things are checked off the list. And then you look at your machine. Now, is your machine having issues adequately supplying that gas? Do you have some type of, of gas disconnect that we talked about earlier? Again, if you're still able to, to locate what the cause of this lower oxygen is or this inability in to ventilate the patient, you can always go back to an AMBU bag. 
Uh, you can always ventilate by hand mask there or bag mask at that point and then with an O2 cylinder as well. In the event, though, that your CO2 becomes exhausted, this is something that isn't necessarily pressing compared to the inability to ventilate. But the, the catch here with your CO2 absorbent becoming exhausted is that with every breath the patient exhales, they exhale that CO2, it goes through this closed loop, it goes to the absorbent, gets absorbed, and then a lot of that same air comes back into the next inspiratory breath. But if that CO2 absorbent becomes exhausted, then the exhaled CO2 won't get absorbed with that absorbent. It'll just come right back through that and come right back into the next inspiratory breath. So if that's the case, then you're going to start seeing the patient have an increase in their inspiratory CO2 levels. So one thing you could do is if you have any type of anesthesia support staff or any of your colleagues that would bring you in another CO2 absorbent, if it's going to be a long case, and you can switch it out in the middle of a case. Uh, however, if you don't have that availability, a second option you can do is just increase your flow. And what that does is it doesn't allow the same air that was exhaled to come back in on the next inhaled breath. It'll have that go out through the scavenger and maybe some of it will come back in, but a lot of the fresh gas flow coming in through the machine will come in for that next breath. The negative side of this is you're going to be using more of your volatile anesthetic because you're blowing more of that through uh, rather than keeping a lot of that in that closed loop. Um, but just know you can change that out. That happened to me literally yesterday. I was doing a case and I noticed that my entitle was not going back to baseline and it was starting to just creep up a little bit. And so while I waited for more absorbent, I just increased my flows. And then I was like crushing through my my gas. And then I was like, man, this is it's kind of a catch-22 because you want to obviously get your end title to be replaced, get the absorbent to be replaced so that your end title will go back to baseline. But it's crazy how fast you can run through gas when you have your flows flows up to to make sure you're clearing that. When we talk about our unidirectional valves. This is another problem that we want to address and look at how we can manage this. So there are unidirectional valves both on the inspiratory and expiratory side of our breathing system. If these valves stop working during a case, it can happen for a variety of reasons. It could just simply break or it could get stuck, but there's different presenting signs that you'll see. And so it's important that we run through this quickly. So expiratory valve failure, this is going to happen if the valve stops opening appropriately, it can cause a partial obstruction of the gas that the patient is exhaling. And think about this, if you have issues with getting rid of that oxygen or getting rid of that gas from the patient, then you could have a risk for barotrauma here as that volume continues to build. If it doesn't close completely, then the exhaled gas that is high in your carbon dioxide will be able to come back through the valve during inspiration. And so you can start to see your end tidal continue to increase. And this could simply be because your excitatory valve won't close all the way. And again, as the patient inspires, they're able to pull back in some of that expired CO2 from the previous breath. And now you're starting to see an elevated both inspiratory and expiratory portion of your end tidal waveform. This is similar to what you would see with your absorbent being saturated and 
So this is, you know, one of those forks in the road when you're trying to troubleshoot what the problem is. If you change your absorbent and you're still having increased in your end tidal CO2 and also your baseline CO2, then this would be something that you would look at your excretory valve. Possibly it's having an issue there where it's being left open and doesn't close completely. If you have inspiratory valve failure, this is where, you know, obviously on the other side of the circuit, you're having issues with the valve on the inspiratory limb. So if your inspiratory valve fails to close completely, then CO2 will be exhaled through the valve. And then the patient is going to be able to inhale CO2 on the next breath. So this is again, uh, a problem of having CO2 left in the circuit and being able to inspire this instead of having, you know, you should have your, your entire CO2 waveform should be going back all the way to zero. But if you have a patient who has this valve that is not closing completely, they'll be inspiring the CO2 on the next breath. This will result in a prolonged plateau of your CO2 on your waveform, and then it will not again return to zero. If these valve problems are suspected, then you can switch out these valves during a case. And again, this is something that you will be troubleshooting to figure out why your waveform on your entitled CO2 is not looking appropriate, whether you're not going back to baseline or you're having an increased number as far as your entitled CO2 reading. And you're going to be working through, is this a problem with my absorbent? Is this a problem with my flows? Is this a problem with my patient? Is this a problem with the expiratory or inspiratory valves? And these are things that uh, you'll all be working through and being able to, uh, again, figure out the, the problem and be able to have a solution there, whether you're going to just replace your absorbent or you're going to be able to place your valves during the case. These are all good solutions. All right. So the last thing that we want to talk about is what happens when you have an electrical malfunction. And as Tanner said earlier, this could be anything from just simply your computer won't turn on all the way up to the entire OR shuts down. And so in the event of AC power loss, depending on what things are being affected, it's going to greatly affect then the interventions you're going to have to do and the urgency at which you're going to have to do it. So really, we want to talk for the most part of this, what happens if the entire OR shuts down, or specifically what happens if your anesthesia gas machine loses power. Because if your IV pumps lose AC power, this is something that has a battery life, it'll last for a little bit. You could you could always just change it out for another IV pump, etc. Um, really, what we want to talk about what happens if the anesthesia gas machine shuts off. So most of our job duties as anesthesia providers rely upon the use of electrical power. You really don't think about it until you go through and think about all the different things that we do. But our anesthesia equipment that typically uses electrical power from a wall outlet include obviously our anesthesia gas machine, uh, any vital device monitors, mechanical ventilators, uh, the Tech 6 vaporizers, any fluid warmers that we use, air warmers, IV pumps, if you have electronic charting, almost everything is going to be based on having some sort of, of AC power or electrical source. So during a general anesthetic, the anesthesia machine needs some sort of electrical power 
and this is this varies on what functions of the anesthesia machine that we've talked about already. Different machines have certain aspects or parts of it that are going to require an AC power source. Um, some are driven by pressure and some are driven by electrical when I talk about the different components of it. And so this is really going to depend on which gas machine you have at your facility. And some facilities that I've been at have several different ones at each facility. So you really kind of have to know what anesthesia machine you're dealing with in the event that this arises. But all the newer machines are required to have at least a 30-minute backup battery in the event that the power source does get unplugged or the power is lost. Um, again, if it just simply gets unplugged from the outlet in the in the room, you can always just simply replug that in. The real detriment is going to be if you have a loss of AC power to the whole room. And this actually happened to me about three weeks into my first job after graduating from school and the entire OR lost power. And I immediately jumped up, made sure my anesthesia machine was was still working. I was still able to ventilate the patient. <clears throat> I quickly went to the back of our medication cart where we typically keep our ambu bags. And I wanted to make sure that I had that there. I had an oxygen tank there in case I needed to manually ventilate the patient. Thankfully, I didn't have to do anything. This backup battery life lasted uh, long enough. The power came back on a few minutes later, and it, it really was <clears throat> no issue to me or no change from my anesthetic plan. But it made me think about the fact of what would I have done if the power didn't come back on? Um, is there anything that I would have had to have done differently? Would I have had to manually ventilate the patient? And if so, would I have had to switch over to a TIVA, uh, a total IV anesthetic because my volatile anesthetic then wouldn't be kicking in. Uh, what will we do with the surgery? Do we continue with the surgery? I guess that depends on what type of procedure we're doing and how far into the procedure we are. Uh, these are the questions that started popping through my head. But it is nice to know that these newer machines will have at least a 30-minute backup battery life to keep the ventilation in process. So what do the anesthesia machines have? Because if you've noticed on a lot of these newer machines, there are outlet sources on them themselves. And so they themselves should be plugged in to a special outlet of your facility that is powered by a generator. That way, in the case that there is an electrical power failure and the generator kicks back on, it'll still be functioning and working. But again, in, in the event that this goes out as well, you need to know what to do. Now, with the actual outlets that are on the anesthesia machine, be careful of what you plug in to these outlets. So don't plug in heating devices such as like the fluid warmer, the blanket warmers, and these receptacles. And I'm talking about sometimes they're on the back side of these anesthesia machines, sometimes they're on the top. Just don't plug those kind of devices into them because they draw more amps or more amperage compared to other devices. So they're more likely to trip the circuit breaker which then if you trip the circuit breaker, that can stop power flowing to other parts of the anesthesia machine, such as the more important parts as the ventilation, et cetera. Now, newer gas machines have uh, mechanical needle valve flow meters and variable bypass vaporizers, which basically means that they can continue to, to supply that volatile anesthetic even during a loss in power. So these includes the Fabius GS, Apollo, the Aspire, and the Aestiva machines. It's important to know which gas machines you're using though at your facility. And again, I know they sometimes are even different from room to room, uh, but it's important to know that which ones will still be functional and which components of the machine will still be functional compared to others in the event that you do have a break at circuit get tripped, um, you lose power, et cetera. 
Now, a lot of the machines have pneumatic functions. So again, what that means is they're not working on AC power. They're working on more pressure pneumatics. And so they'll keep working even after the battery has run out at the backup battery. So this is going to be your fill safe or the epoxic pressure gauges, your cylinders, pipeline pressure gauge, total, total fresh gas flow meters, or your adjustable pressure limiting or your APL valve. And then lastly, your vaporizers. So a lot of those things will still be working even after the battery is exhausted. But in the event of a power outage, if you don't have a generator backup, so let's say you lose power, the generator you either don't have or it doesn't kick on, you need to immediately check all the aspects of the gas machine, make sure that you have mechanical ventilation and you have the vaporizers working so that you're able to, for one, maintain that ventilation and oxygenation. But then two, you want to make sure the anesthetic is still being delivered through those volatile anesthetics. If that's all functional, just keep your ventilator settings. Use 100% oxygen. If you're concerned about the battery length, you should have at least 30 minutes. Now, if you're in a procedure where the patient is spontaneously ventilating and this happens, if you have them on the manual ventilation and not a mechanical ventilation, then it should extend that to closer to one hour rather than just a 30-minute backup battery life. So in the event, though, that the mechanical ventilation is not working, you can always flip them to spontaneous ventilation, and you can just bag mass ventilate the patient through the machine, as long as you still have an oxygen flowing through the machine, either through the pipeline or through the cylinder. But again, if this is not working, you can always manually ventilate through your AMBU bag, grab that oxygen tank, uh, and just be able to supply anesthetic then through an IV form. So whether you continue to ventilate the patient through the anesthesia machine or say that you have switched now just to use an AMBU bag and you're using an oxygen tank, you need to, again, verify that ventilation is appropriate. So you're checking bilateral breath sounds and you're making sure that you've got good flows to the patient. You're going to want to call immediately for a battery-powered monitoring device so you can monitor your end title and uh, you can also be monitoring the patient hemodynamics as, as soon as possible. You will want to make sure that the patient is going to maintain anesthetic depth. So you're going to want to switch over to IV anesthetics instead of your volatile gas. And this is a conversation that you're having with the whole room. So you're communicating with the surgical team about the plan moving forward. Did we just start this case? Can we abort safely and wake this patient up? Is this an emergent case that needs to keep moving forward? Are we so far into the case that it's unsafe to abort the case where we're at and we need to continue to move forward? All of these things are going to be conversations that you're having with the surgical team, but it's important that you are using your resources, using the other people that are in your department that are available to come and help you. This is not something that you need to be tackling all by yourself. And so, you know, the main thing like we've said the last episode and this episode is keeping the patient first, keeping the patient safe. And so now that you've established ventilation with, you know, whatever means that you're using, again, whether you are able to still use your anesthesia machine or if you're just using an boo bag and you're manually ventilating the patient, now we've got monitoring devices brought on board. Now we're, you know, charting with a paper anesthesia record. We've communicated with the team. We have a plan moving forward. And through all of that, 
the patient is kept at the center as we troubleshoot all of these different problems. Let's say there's a power failure and you have a generator backup. This is typically, should be typically, the scenario that we're going to be dealing with. You will verify that the anesthesia gas machine is functional. You're going to make sure that everything is working as it should. You're going top to bottom, looking through all of your volumes, your rate, your flows, making sure that your you know monitoring devices are all showing appropriately, making sure that everything is working as it should and that you know whether the machine had to switch back onto battery power and then switch back onto the generator that nothing there changed any of your settings or anything electrical happened during that transition so you check top to bottom make sure that your machine is working appropriately and then like i said you're checking your monitors so you might need to re-zero some transducers if you have more invasive monitoring you may need to just make sure that no waveforms are paused or nothing is again switched to a different profile you're going to want to make sure that your electronic chart is still picking up vitals and is still picking up you know the the patient as it was before that nothing was paused that nothing was reset rebooted in that case you're just going to switch to a paper chart and keep moving on with the case Again, you're going to want to make sure that you have your emergency equipment available. This is something that, like we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, should be done every single day. And you should know exactly where your ambu bag is. You should know exactly where your oxygen tank would be. And these are things that, again, we should have already covered. But if you're at the point where you're on a backup generator, these are especially things that you're going to want to be making sure that you have your plan B teed up and ready to go in the event that the generator would fail or there would be other issues that you have, you know, that plan B ready to go so that you can, again, keep the patient safe. Some of this seems to be, a, you know, a little more technical than what we typically like to cover. It's probably a little more fun to be talking about different pressors and talking about the pharmacology of local anesthetics or talking about, you know, different cases and talking about things that we consider to be probably more of the flashier or more fun side of anesthesia. But this is something that is so important that we have a plan that you are working through these things in your mind. It's totally appropriate to you know, have these simulations through just like mental imaging and, and working through, okay, if this were to happen, what's my what's my step two? What's my plan B? What am I going to be doing to ventilate this patient? What am I going to do to keep the patient sedated? What am I going to do if the patient has invasive monitoring and I'm losing power? What are th- am I going to do if I'm losing, you know, my pressures through the anesthesia machine? How am I going to continue to ventilate this patient? So this is all the other side of anesthesia that you hopefully don't have to encounter, but it should be planned for. It should be, you know, practiced, if not physically in like a sim lab or something like that. Mentally, you should be working through all these different scenarios so that in the event that this happens, you're prepared, you are um, ready to work through the different diagnostic pathways to figure out exactly where the equipment malfunction is happening, how we can address it and how we can move on with the case or how we can safely pull back from the case and get this patient waking up and safely out of the OR. 
So again, hopefully this is very helpful as you start to think about these things, helpful for you as you think about how you'll troubleshoot and uh, stick with us for the next episode. We'll talk again about more equipment technology. But again, we think that this is something that is not talked about as frequently, but is something that is just so and so important when we talk about our anesthetic care. Mm-hmm.